verses 20 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Again, this is, uh, I've entitled this uh, message, A Difficult Prophecy, I guess, is the question mark. A Difficult Prophecy. Uh, This is the reading of God's holy word from Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That is the reading of God's most difficult word. Join with me as we get into prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time to get into this word. We know that this is not an easy one. This is a very difficult one, in fact, because this is what differentiates a lot of Christians in their understanding of end times. And as we contemplate what that looks like and maybe we find fear in in what's going on in our world today and maybe we see a lot of end time theology being played out right before our eyes. But what I pray for is clarity, simplicity, and cogency. May your word work in us to find really the hope that is in this text. And may we see Christ above all things. We thank you, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever asked what you thought was a simple question 
only to find out that the answer is so complex that you're just indeed a, a dummy and you'll never understand. Well, that's what happens when people ask my wife uh, what she does for a living. And she tells them that she's a pharmaceutical consultant. And, and that's also what happens when we think it's a simple question and, and then she allows me to try to explain what, my, what she does for work. And uh, she just smiles and laughs because she's, she sees how idiotic I am, okay? Um, that's the feeling when we approach the second half of Daniel chapter 9. That's the feeling we have when we ask a simple question of, what is this word saying? What is this vision re uh, regarding to, Pastor David? It seems like a simple question, and yet... It's such a difficult and complex thing. I, I, I had two weeks to work on this message, uh, and I had to do it over vacation. Um, and I, even last night, found myself panicking because I didn't know if I could be very clear here. What, we want someone to explain the meaning of the vision to us on a level that we can understand. But we're tempted to fear that it simply cannot be understood by people like us. Maybe, you know, high-level biblical uh, specialists that know the intricacies of the Bible can explain and understand Daniel 9. But for us normal people, we find ourselves scratching our heads. And if that's you, you're not alone. Okay, so hopefully I'm giving you a little bit of hope. Because in 400 AD, one of the most brilliant scholars and linguists in the ancient church, his name was Jerome, or otherwise known as Jerome, as some people might know. Jerome, right, wrote this. He said, because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one view above the other, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. This is a, a biblicist, uh, one of the most brilliant scholars in our great church history, saying, I don't know what view is correct. And then he repeats and he lists nine conflicting opinions on the meaning of this passage and declares himself unable to decide which one is right? So I'm going to be sitting here, standing here, telling you my view is right. <laughs> Good luck, right? Well, here's our hope. The key to understanding, I believe, this vision is to focus on what is central and to focus on what is clear rather than what is challenging and complicated. And so, you know, this sermon is not going to be that easy to follow, and I apologize with you, but it's going to be for us more of a teaching lesson, and I hope that it is illuminating for us to understand this text, okay? We're not going to unravel every complexity in the passage, but if we follow the rule that we're going to focus on the central, we're going to focus on the clear, then I think that the vision should not be as difficult to see. At least I hope. So, let's get our Bible-hearing, theological, astute minds and ears ready 
for this interpretation. Here we go. We have three points for us, okay? Daniel's prayer and God's response, the cutting off of the Messiah, and then thirdly, the destruction of the sanctuary and our hope. Now, we need to first remind ourselves of the central burden of Daniel's prayer in the first half of this chapter. We have to note this is the context to understand the vision that's being laid out for Daniel. Last time, which was two weeks ago, I know it was a long time, Daniel told us that he had been pondering Jeremiah's prophecy. A 70-year period of exile and being under the rule of a Babylonian empire. Jeremiah prophesied that. It happened in Daniel's day. Then God would judge them, Babylonians, and his people would return to the land to rebuild the temple. That's the concern that Daniel has in his prayer. And so Daniel's prayer took place during then the first year of a new king, King Darius, immediately after the Babylonian Empire had fallen to the Persians and the Medes. So that's the context, okay? You see where he's praying at, the time in which he's praying at. That's the first part of the fulfillment. They were under 70 years about of oppression from a Babylonian Empire. And King Belshazzar did his thing, and then he got overtaken the night, the next day. And so Daniel saw this, and he prayed for the second part to then be fulfilled. Daniel acknowledged that God had judged his people and his sanctuary for their sin. And he also held out the perspective of then Okay, God, our people, my people, the Israelites, we deserve the exile, 70 years. But you also promised a new beginning with circumcised hearts. And so in Daniel's day, the covenant relationship between God and his people, which had been broken by sin and transgression of Israel and Judah, had also a second part to it. That his hope and prayer was that the ending of Jeremiah's 70-year period of judgment and the new regime being changed, that this would then usher in a new and changed people. As people repented, which Daniel started to notice, Daniel hoped to see then the second part coming. Why? Because according to Jeremiah, this change would bring in the Messiah. That's the background, okay? I hope you followed. That's the background of this vision with Gabriel. Gabriel's appearance provided an immediate and explicit answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel didn't even finish his prayer before it got answered, and Gabriel came. And so what was Gabriel's response? Remember what Daniel's praying for, okay? 70 years, looks like it's ending. 
uh, the Babylonian Empire is taken, overtaken. People, my people, our people, we're sorry for their sins. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm praying for their sins. God, change, bring in the second part of the fulfillment. And Gabriel's response is in verse 24. And Gabriel says, well, we're going to put an end to sin. We're going to atone for iniquity. There's going to be everlasting righteousness and anoint a holy place. One day, God's sinful people, he says, would be justified before God. And instead of the past neglects of the word of the prophet, the Lord would seal up their words. That's what it says in verse 24. Now, this word sealing, here it doesn't much indicate closing the book or keeping the word, but rather, this word seal means vindicating them, stamping them with God's seal of ownership through their fulfillment. Okay? God is saying, this is going to happen. Now, before we go further, we ought to know that this type of prayer petition is not for super saints like a Daniel. Okay? We already embarked about how great, quote unquote, Daniel was. He was a super saint to a lot of Christians. You and I, you see, can also pray like this. We have the privilege and the responsibility of approaching the throne of grace with our petitions and requests. And yet often, our response to the darkness that's around us is either a, a human activism that places all of our hopes in our own efforts, or, which is more like me, a passive despair that assumes that nothing can be done to counter the spread of evil. We have the responsibility, like Daniel, to pray the prayer of these types of petitions that the world is going through and all the darkness that surrounds it. And we either do something on our own to fix it, or we are, we are filled with despair and say, there's nothing we can do. And Daniel 9 challenges us to get on our knees before the Lord and to plead with Him to bring in the new world where sin and rebellion are gone and eternal righteousness is here. And like I said two weeks ago, our prayers are far too small. And our God in our minds are far too small. And we should be praying. Now so far, okay, Daniel or Gabriel's news is good news to Daniel. Oh, that's great. There's going to be, uh, uh, this is going to usher in the new, the new world, the new, the new hearts. That's great. However, there's bad news. The promised transformation will not arrive at the end of 70 years of exile, which is the 77s or 70 weeks, Okay. God's time scale is far bigger than Daniel had ever imagined. Now, many understand these 70 weeks to be a literal 490 years. And so you'll have biblical scholars looking at this text and saying, well, when is this 490 years going to be completed? And so, again, this has made and divided Christians about how the world is going to end. 
This is why this is such a difficult text, and this is why I'm going to be trying to do my best to make this as clear to you as possible. Now, some, like I said, have made these 70 weeks, well, 7 times uh, uh, 70 is 490, okay? So we've got to find 490 years somewhere, okay? But others have seen this not an actual 490 years, but more like how Matthew 18 describes it. No one in Matthew 18 there interprets this as literally 490 times of forgiveness. But if they sin 491 times, well, crucify them. Right? Jesus was saying that Peter's perspective to forgive, when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? And Jesus says, well, 70 times 7. Right? We don't look at it that way and say, well, okay, so Jesus is telling me, oh, I got to forgive 490 times, but 491 times, now that person's gone. No, 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 no. Jesus is telling Peter, no, your idea of forgiveness needs to be expanded beyond what you can understand. You should always forgive. And I think we should take that perspective here. Transformation in the heart and lives of God's people it will take a long time, but that shouldn't cause Daniel to despair. Even though it's coming, it, uh, it's coming will occur after his lifetime because it doesn't come until, you know, way later. The promised new covenant will arrive in due season and it will accomplish everything God has designed for it. And you see, we need to hear exactly this challenge about the way God works in your life. You need to hear it. I need to hear it. We live in an age of instant when we expect everything to come to us now, if not sooner. To satisfy our impatience, we have invented meals that can be nuked in the microwave, right? And rice that, can, that takes no more than a minute to cook. Well, we've created uh, systems where we can order something and it comes one day if you pay a certain price. Insane. Everything is instant. This happens even in our relationships with God and neighbor. We want instant satisfaction for ourselves. Demanding God to transform our lives in a twinkling of an eye and to remove immediately the sins that so frustrate you and me. And we likewise want our spouses and our children to be made holy at once or at least by next week. And since we know that if it is God's will for us to be made holy ultimately, we expect that action to be accomplished now. We expect that in ourselves and we expect that in others. And yet Daniel 9, the caveat here, tells us and shows us that God's time scale for the sanctification of his people and the renovation of the world is far larger than you and I typically think. God is not as concerned as we are with fixing us right away. Let me repeat that. God is not as concerned as you are at fixing you right away. 
Nor is he in the business of transforming our friends and our family members into perfect saints immediately. To be sure, he'll accomplish the complete transformation and the sanctification of our lives eventually, and it will happen, but not, maybe not now. Our sanctification will literally take a lifetime. We are all works of renovation and progress and will be so until the day we die. So why then do you expect that person that's messing up your life or struggling with you and making your life a a literal pain, we expect God to change that person like that. We expect God to change us like that. It's important that we, I don't think I've, done this so many times in a sermon. Uh, It's important that we remember this truth so that we will be patient with God's work in ourselves and in those around us. You see, this is one of the points that we should understand Daniel 9 teaching us. It doesn't give us license to, to be lazy or sin as much as we can. What it actually should do is stir in you a diligent pursuit of perfect obedience in this world. As long as we're still in this world, we will never move beyond the need for God's forgiveness and daily empowerment. You remember Martin Luther said when he was asked, what will you do on the last day of the world? And he said, I'd plant a tree. In fact, the very slowness of God's work of sanctification in our lives demonstrates just how important it must be to God that we should be constantly aware of our own desperate need of His grace in our lives. God is determined to develop our humility and perpetual dependence upon Him, and it will take our whole lives. And sometimes it'll go like this, boom, boom, like crypto, okay? And if we see this in our lives, then it really proves to us important that we ought to be patient with others. We're so naturally quick to judge others, especially when their besetting sins are transgressions over which we ourselves have gained the victory of. We easily think to ourselves and to God, God, I put that death, I put death to that sin so easily. Why can't they? And when you say that, you have forgotten about grace. Do you know what goes on in their life? Do you know the intricacies of their sins? No. We think, hey, I put death to that sin. Why can't they? As if our progress in sanctification were simply the result of your own effort. And that's simply not true. Yet when we struggle in an ongoing way against a particular sin that painfully and persistently keeps on tripping us up, then we learn to show others the same grace that we receive daily from the Lord. You see how that works? When you really understand grace, when you realize that you haven't put to death that sin, and it wasn't your work that put it away, when you really recognize that, 
then the knowledge of our own weakness and sin enables us to then reach out and stretch out our hands and our hearts to others in their sinfulness and in their process of sanctification. And if you do not do that, and you cut them off because they'll never learn, their habits are way too unsavable. You've misunderstood grace. And in fact, our prayers are often this small. Daniel 9 teaches us a lot, doesn't it? Sorry, that's just the first point. The second, here's where it gets difficult. In the first seven of sevens, the decree to restore Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one would happen. Okay? So in the first seven of sevens, right? In the first 49 weeks, okay? The decree to restore Jerusalem would happen. Now hopefully you can keep your math brains to follow with me. But for the the next 62 weeks, it would be built in a troubled time. And this is where it gets really complicated, okay? So... Keep your eyes on the Bible in these texts and just try to follow with me. In verse 25, we see a response to Daniel's prayer in verse 23. And that word itself effectuates the decree of restoring that the Lord had promised in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, almost 70 years earlier. This is what Jeremiah 29 verse 10 says. It says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So the Israelites were exiled for 70 years under the realm of the Babylonians. And in Jeremiah 29, 10, it had been prophesied that would come to an end and the Israelites would come back. And the decree of Cyrus, this is a little history for you, in 538 B.C., allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Which is great. Looks like the prophecy is being fulfilled. But this is merely an earthly reflex of a heavenly decision. You see, this distinction between earthly and heavenly decrees underscores the difficulty to explain the exact timing of how this all works out. The first seven shows God's immediately, immediate response to Daniel's request. The city of Jerusalem, indeed, will be rebuilt in the short term. Jeremiah's prophecy of a restoration after 70 years will then find a partial fulfillment. However, the period of restoration, along with the subsequent 62 weeks after the city has been rebuilt, Gabriel says would be a very troublesome time. And Jerusalem will not yet enjoy the complete safety and security of which Jeremiah 33, verse 16 spoke. Of a new covenant. Now the Messianic ruler will make his appearance only at the end of these 69 weeks. So you following with me? In the first seven of sevens, or the seven weeks, there's a declaration 
of Jerusalem, hey, we're going to rebuild it. This is after the Babylonian Empire has fallen. But in the next 62 weeks, that rebuilding is going to be tumultuous and difficult. And what Gabriel says, and after that 69th week, a messianic ruler will come in, make a covenant, and usher in the climactic 70th week. Yet even then, his appearance would not immediately usher in the place and righteousness that Jeremiah anticipated. Instead, the Messiah will himself be cut off, leaving him nothing. That's what verse 26 says. Now, once again, this turns out our expectations of history on their head. We tend to assume that if God is in control of history and God is in control of our lives, then they should run fairly smooth towards glory. Maybe there are some obstacles, but on the whole, we expect God to make our paths smooth and easy, and especially when we're walking in obedience to Him. And yet, 69 out of Daniel's 70 weeks are marked by difficulties and trials, and the 70th week is no easier. The future that Daniel is shown is a future that encompasses wars and rumors of wars, along with trials anticipated and experienced. And what's more, the future that he describes for God's people reflects our own future, the difficult path towards glory. And so all this to say is, these trials are our path to glory because they were first our Messiah's path to glory. God doesn't demand of us anything he is not willing to undergo himself. You see, his own anointed one, the Christ, came to a work of suffering and experienced that suffering firsthand to the point of being cut off and left with nothing. And therefore, your health concerns seem smaller when we compare them to the experience of the crucifixion to the point of death. Our money troubles are put in context when we compare them with having soldiers gambling for the shirt off Jesus' back, the only possession that he owned. Our difficult relationships and feeling of being abandoned and alone are nothing compared to Jesus' experience of having all of his friends flee from him and deny that they even knew him in the hour of need, of his greatest need. There's no greater abandonment than having the Father turn his face away in repugnance because of the load of sin that he bore. And so this time of struggle, this time of, uh, of, of uh, difficulty, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ went through. And we should expect the same. The Anointed One was cut off for us and left with nothing, he was wounded for our iniquities, bruised for our transgression, abandoned for our betrayals. And so when that 69th week occurred, the Messiah came and he was rejected, cut off. Now, third, again, this has been very difficult for me to prepare, and I hope that you're following with me. But here we go, number three. I think it's been fairly straightforward 
to establish the meaning of Daniel's vision and its relationship to history. Okay? After all, Jerusalem was eventually rebuilt. As we know, if you look at history, it was rebuilt. And its trials and difficulties certainly continued. When Jesus the Messiah finally arrived, he was indeed cut off. He went to the cross and he was left with nothing. And the most difficult part of the vision is what follows the cutting off of the Messiah. You see, at this point, Daniel was told that Jerusalem and his sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the ruler who will come in verse 26. So we've already established that these 69 weeks is not a literal, you know, uh, 400 and, oh shoot, uh, 82 years, okay? It wasn't a, a literal 482 years. But rather, it was a time period where Jerusalem would have trouble getting the, the temple rebuilt. But eventually they did. Okay? That's where we are now. In verse 26 is where it becomes very difficult. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to then there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. The sanctuary will be de destroyed by the people of the ruler who will come. Verse 26. The question is, who are these people that Gabriel is referring to, and who is this ruler? And also, we read that someone is going to confirm a covenant with many for that final climactic 70th week, and in the middle of the week, he will put an end to this sacrifice and offering. Now, who is this person that's being referred to? And what is this mysterious, desolating abomination that Daniel 9, chapter 27 talks about? And how does this relate to the events described earlier? Now, according to premillennialists, these last events represent a jump far into the future from the preceding context. So in their eyes... There is this parenthesis in between the 69th week and the 70th week during which the history of the church will play itself out after which then the Antichrist will come, destroy Jerusalem, and then we will have a rebuilt temple. And on their approach, this covenant that's being talked about in verse 27 is a political agreement that the Antichrist will make in those last days with some of the Jews, and he, will, he is the one who puts an end to the renewed sacrifices and offerings in these last days by destroying the Jerusalem temple, which will have been rebuilt by then. And so what the premillennials are looking for is an Antichrist to come. Maybe it's Putin, Okay. Then they will see a, a rebuilt temple and yada, yada, yada. That's one view. The other hand, all mills, all millennialists and post-millennialists believe that the covenant mentioned here is God's new covenant with his people. Inaugurated by the Messiah and the desolation and destruction of the temple took place in 70 AD, the first century. Now, before I continue, I want to make this caveat. Let's first recognize that both of these views 
all of these views are advanced by people who love the Lord and take the prophecy of Daniel seriously. And these verses are certainly difficult to interpret. And I want to make that point very clear because I do not think, even my uncle, I was talking to my uncle the other day and he was talking to me, asking me about how, you know, know, there's new technology and and, and Putin in this war is going to, create the end times and he was just asking me for a you know confirmation and I was like I'm sorry I'm not I don't believe in that um, but I didn't I didn't you know look down on him uh, I may have judged my uncle but but the whole point is we shouldn't judge people for their views here it's very difficult but we have to recognize that both of these views can't be right so we need to ask Which of these views has the stronger claim to be right, and how do we decide between them? Okay? Did the temple being rebuilt and destroyed, will that happen in the future, or has that already happened, is the question. And the best method is to let the immediate context guide our interpretation. Remember, Daniel's prayer was deeply concerned with the fate of God's covenant relationship with his people. And in response, Gabriel announces to him that the 70 weeks would see coming fulfillment of all the promises of Jeremiah's new covenant with the elimination of rebellion and sin and the vindication of prophecy. And it seems to me, therefore, Most natural to see the covenant that's mentioned without further description in verse 27 as the new covenant, which will be confirmed in the final climactic week of world history. And you see, the 70th week is what we would kind of see as a jubilee type of week in which God restores all things to their proper estate. And so if that is correct then clearly it is the Messiah who confirms the covenant with many and brings an end to suffering and our sacrifice and offering. And with Jesus coming into the world, and especially with his death and resurrection, the 70th week is here. We're in the 70th week now. In Jesus, our jubilee trumpet has sounded and the victory over sin and transgression, that's been won. And what's more, the death of Jesus on the cross and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, then this is why they become redundant and worthless. This is why we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. This is why we can eat bacon, not turkey bacon, okay? The new covenant is now here as our Lord himself taught us on the night before he died. And with the coming of Jesus, all of the things that verse 24 anticipated have been accomplished in principle. That our sins are atoned for. That our transgressions are removed from us. That the words of the prophets have been vindicated. Do you you see that? Of course, we still await the end of the 70th week, but we still drink the new cup until Jesus comes again. And yet, since the final sacrifice that atoned for the transgressions of the many have now been offered, there is no further need for a temple in Jerusalem. That's not what we're longing for, nor should we be looking for that in Israel. 
As soon as Jesus died, you remember, the temple was no longer needed, and that's why the temple broke when Jesus breathed his last breath. You see, Daniel was being told by, uh, that the people of the Messiah would once again destroy Jerusalem and its sanctuary in exactly the same way they had done in Daniel's own day through their own disobedience and rebellion. And that's precisely what happened. So you see, 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, that wasn't the Romans' fault. It was the sin of God's own people, and it repeated It happened in Daniel's day, and it happened in Jesus' day. And that prophecy is fulfilled. And let me conclude with this. This brings us to the final words in the chapter, which are more difficult than anything we've addressed so far. Listen to it with me. In the middle of that seven week, 70th week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, an account of the extreme extremity of abominations that cause desolation until the end has been decreed, it will be poured out unto desolation. Now, what this verse seems to be saying is that there will be a climactic abomination that causes the devastation of final judgment that we were told in the previous verse had been declared for Jerusalem. And in the light of what we've already said, it seems probable that rather than describe a future event, this extreme abomination that caused the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple is nothing other than the crucifixion of Jesus. The rejection and the cutting off of God's appointed Messiah. And if this was to be Jerusalem's ultimate fate, was Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant in vain? Was it locked in an endlessly repeating cycle of transgression and destruction? No, not at all. The Lord had made it very clear in verse 24 that he would indeed bring about everything that Jeremiah had spoken of in the new covenant. And verse 27 affirms, that in, the sp- in spite of the continuing wickedness and rebellion of his people, which would culminate in God's own people rejecting the Messiah and the consequent destruction of Jerusalem, the Messiah would confirm God's covenant with the many fulfilling the provisions. You see that? In the face of abomination, when God's own people put the Messiah on the cross. God's own people cut off the Messiah themselves. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' day. And the whole point is that God's grace would still ultimately triumph. And herein lies the hope for the worst sinners in the darkest of moments. Because even if we have crucified Jesus by our lifestyle, which we have, taking the Messiah that God sent to be our Savior and using his name as a swear word, God's grace is still sufficient for our sins. 
Even if we have rebelled and transgressed against him in every possible way, what this screams is that there's still hope. Even when God's own people in 70 AD put him to the cross, God's grace still triumphs. And what this tells us is if if you sin with abuse, if you sin with sex, if you sin with crime, financial scam, scam, cruelty, we too can still come to the one who was cut off and receive mercy and forgiveness. We can receive cleansing from him. (coughs) Excuse me. And Daniel 9 shows us that Jesus is our only hope in that darkness. Daniel 9 reminds us to keep looking beyond this world for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. You see, what's going on is this all this prophecy has already been fulfilled. And even though we are in the 70th week now, it's still going to be a time of trouble. You're going to go through faith up and down, up and down, up and down. You're going to sin tremendously still. And your lifestyle, your mindset, your perspective puts Jesus on the cross. And yet, the truth and the hope is that God's grace still shines. That even if you put Jesus on the cross, even if you abandon him, as a friend. God's victory has been won. So the hope of all this and figuring out the end times and all that stuff, you may not agree with my interpretation. We can all agree that the hope is that Jesus has won and he has brought about what verse 24 says that are decreed about your people, your holy city, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to vindicate both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That's done for us now. Not a future event. It's now. The kingdom of God is here. All of our sins have been vindicated by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been declared uh, covered by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, why we should live in obedience is only because of what has happened for us. And so the hope is to remember that God's grace can win even over the darkest of sins. That's what we should live by and unto. And if this whole world stuff and, 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 and antichrist stuff scares you. Still remember Jesus is victorious and has been victorious over all darkness. Let's pray.